0: I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. On this episode, we put on our thinking caps for a conversation filled with big ideas and deep analysis.
1: I think that the 21st century starts now. That's
0: Drew Poleg, a former developer and technologist who's now an innovative thought leader and writer. With his book, Rethinking Real Estate, Drawer's novel perspective has been causing a buzz throughout our business.
1: I love making people think. You know, I don't want to tell them what they already know or what they already think. And that's what people pay me to do. I don't have to be right, I just have to make them think.
0: It's a lively give and take about the state and the future of the industry. Spoiler alert, we don't agree on everything, and it's sure to be thought provoking for anyone with real estate on their mind. Rethinking Real Estate, that's right now on the Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and my guest this week is Drawer Poleg, the author of Rethinking Real Estate, A Roadmap to Technology's Impact on the World's Largest Asset Class. Dror, welcome. Hi, Spencer. Thank you for having me. Dror, delighted to have you here today. In addition to that, Dror is also the head of the ULI's Tech and Innovation Council. So what a perfect guy to have on today when there are so many questions about the future. But before we talk about your terrific book, Drawer, why don't you just tell our audience, who you are and what you do.
1: I currently spend most of my time actually writing and teaching. I'm already working on another book, which is focused a little more on the future of cities rather than just uh, the buildings within them. I'm also co-chairing, as you said, ULI New York's uh, Tech and Innovation Council. And I teach a course about the future of office uh, through my own company called Real Innovation Academy. Before that, I spent a decade in China doing real estate development. So took part in developing about 30 million square feet of different things, so shopping malls, offices, apartments, service apartments, hotels. Uh, before and after that, I was in the technology world. So I was a partner in a digital design agency. And after that, I was a CEO of a startup that tried to build a location-based social network, uh, which didn't go too well. And somehow over the last few years, I kind of converged all my various interests, both in real estate and generally in geography and culture and in technology, into trying to look about how they impact each other, and particularly how technology impacts the way buildings are used and designed, uh, and ultimately even their role as financial assets. What I do now kind of emerged. I just started writing and speaking about it, and people were interested in that, and the rest is history.
0: Well, uh, that history is now in a terrific book, Rethinking Real Estate. Tell us what it's all about.
1: So the book looks at how technology undermines and redefines all the things that we take for granted about real estate, from the meaning of location, accessibility, visibility, to access to capital and information, to the power of regulation to protect us and our assets from competitors, to even the notion of scarcity itself. So it looks at, for every asset type, so office, retail, residential, uh, industrial, why are things as they are today? So a lot of the stuff that we take for granted actually hasn't been around for very long. How were they shaped by technology until today and how we're starting to see technology reshaping them and then thinking about the consequences for owners, operators, and even institutional investors.
0: Let's keep it big picture for a minute and then we're going to mm-hmm. dig right into the different asset yeah. types and different implications. Which trends in your book were accelerated by COVID
1: and which ones may have changed completely? Mm-hmm. I think most of them were accelerated Uh, So, I mean, one is the transformation of the office world. So the fact that it's becoming more flexible, more serviced, more branded, more consumer oriented. Uh, The fact that the office is in a way a choice that people no longer have to go to the office, which doesn't mean that they will stop going to the office, but it means that you have to convince them. Again, not just the landlord, but even the tenants themselves have to convince their employees. Okay, why do you have to be here? Why do I need you to be here at that hour? What are we actually going to do? How am I going to empower you here better than if you just go to a cafe or you just stay home or you just even take a co-working space? In the retail world, obviously, I mean, the carnage was quite quite clear to begin with. But now it looks like a lot of things are going to be resolved faster. So instead of dragging a lot of stuff for another five or 10 years, uh, looks like retail has come to its moment of truth and will have to emerge very different from this crisis. Uh, in the hospitality world, a lot of things are happening, but maybe the most interesting trend for me was that I expected Airbnb to pivot more towards the housing market, because that that's where I thought things are really interesting.
0: Let me pause you there for just a second, Roy, because I, I was a young associate in a New York City law firm for many, many years, a long, long time ago. And I remember the concept of transaction time, transaction costs. And you talk about that explicitly Mm -hmm. in your book, and you're talking about it now in the multifamily context. But you also talked about the disruption in the office space. How important is the decline in transaction costs? This just the ease of doing business in
1: some of the disruption we're seeing in the office sector. I think it's super important. I mean, the fact that, I mean, the customers always wanted, or at least in the last 10 years, we saw a growing demand for shorter term more service, more specialized access. So, you know, I want to access a different space every day based on what I'm supposed to do that day. So now I'm recording a podcast. I want access to a space that is good for that. Tomorrow I'm doing focused work. Give me access to that. The next day I have to impress a client. So I want to be somewhere else and kind of show off maybe something else. Uh, And we saw over the last particularly five years that most of the uptake in many cities of new space was, by companies such as WeWork and Hotel and Convene and Industria. So these these new type of flexible or service-based operators. So we saw that there's a widening gap between what landlords offer and what customers actually end up paying for. Uh, But now it's becoming easier to book stuff on demand. Uh, Means that customers are getting much more of what they want and that they're starting to not agree to settle for anything less than that.
0: One of the things you're now talking about is a concept called hotelization. Mm -hmm. And hotelization isn't just branding. It also has to do with the gig economy, with shorter-term leases, with uh, on-demand services. And you talk a lot about that in your book. Well, I'm a capital markets guy more than anything else. And it scares me a little bit to hotelize or hotelizationize an office building because the fundamental ground of value is in the lease it's in the long-term commitment but you
1: say oh well office buildings become hotels that's okay i'm not so sure what do you think of course we would all like to have a 10-year lease and you know and a cheap mortgage and everything but but what matters now is what the customers want and we've come to a point where they have enough power and enough alternatives that they can dictate the terms so it doesn't mean that real estate can't make money but it means that we have to adjust ourselves to what the customers want, which in any other industry, you know, it, it's one of the basic laws of doing business. Um, the good news for our listeners is that I think in our current monetary environment, even though real estate compared to itself is becoming riskier, I think it might still look better compared to a lot of other assets. If office historically was kind of the safe, nice, passive almost like purely financial asset, where you, know, you just own it, you bring someone to make sure that you know, there's no fires and that the air conditioning is working, and you collect the rent, that's not going to be enough anymore.
0: Well, well drawer, this is going to be the first area where I have a polite but significant disagreement with you. I still believe, particularly in the office sector, the vast majority of space is still going to be traditional office space, and the reason is very practical. It is the financing markets that are going to dictate a lot of this. If you want to get a cool fit out, well, you got to have a long-term lease. If you want to have a certain type of environment to foster security, a great culture for your company, and the kind of collaboration you want, you probably need to have a traditional lease. So... Are we talking apples and oranges here, or are we closer in our opinions than you think, George?
1: We're not too far because I think, I mean, the office market, it really depends how we define it. I think a lot of the phenomena that we're discussing now are more about what happens in larger cities where knowledge employees work. For your point specifically, I would give you two things to think about without fully disagreeing. One is, I think that traditional capital markets have much less power than they did before landlords kind of saying, okay, I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing and the bankers have my back. I I wouldn't count on that because the the money will flow very quickly to other people that know how to give customers what they actually want. Uh, The second point, which is maybe more kind of pragmatic and and easier to digest and less controversial. If you look at what happened in the retail world, the retail apocalypse was very clear even before COVID. And that apocalypse was based on just 15% of demand Moving online. And even that 15%, a lot of it still required physical space for returns and deliveries. So it didn't like disappear to the internet. Now, if you think about the office market, 5% or 10% or 15% going online, the amount of damage and dislocation that that would cause is enough. And I think that's coming. Office is priced as such a stable asset that that alone will be enough of a difference.
0: Since you mentioned retail, let's let's turn to that for a moment. First of all, the same motivation that you mentioned about people wanting to go to office rather than needing to go to office has been around in retail since the beginning of time. And your book has a great history about retail in the late 19th century and how it's not that different than it is today for some of the better retailers about those who uh, surprise and delight, I think is the term you use in the book, people that have experiences in that retail. And I think... Another concept you talk about in your book are the people that make money are either the aggregators or the disaggregators I think the future of retail is in the aggregators putting it together with office what do you think
1: I think that it's both I think mostly the middle will disappear in in the world of abundance and we see that you know in starting in digital media where things can move can flow freely and then to see how things get rearranged once you take away a lot of the constraints of of the physical world, you see on the one hand, businesses that are aggregators that are very, very large and try to aggregate demand. So they don't care so much about their own specific supply, but they wanna have a relationship with the end user. And then they tell that end user where to go or which uh, specific product to use. But then you see on the other hand, businesses that are much smaller and that are niche businesses that cater to a very specific group of customers in a very specific way and they're also empowered by the internet because now they can suddenly reach those specific people uh, in an affordable way and and generate uh, revenue and demand for their assets. So the things that that get demolished by the internet are all those in the middle. Like if if we look at the world today, you know, there's Google makes money and Spotify makes money and I make money just by being a guy sitting in a basement somewhere because I can reach the thousand people on earth who actually care about me and I can monetize them. So I don't need to reach a million people. But the people that are in trouble are all the people that are between me and, and Google.
0: What we're talking about here is the good old-fashioned economics term agglomeration economies, mm-hmm. right? And agglomeration economies in terms of not only the different asset types, but most importantly, putting them in close proximity to one another. And yeah, I'm going to say it, the future of the city. And there's a lot of people out there who have uh, written uh, off the big cities, the New Yorks, the L.A.'s, the Bostons, the San Francisco's. And you know what I say to those people? I'm, I say, good, because I've got a lot of investors who completely disagree with you, and I'm with the investors. What do you think, Jor?
1: I think the answer is, is not so simple. I agree with you that agglomeration economies still matter for knowledge workers. But one thing that COVID showed us is, one, how dependent we are on essential workers, And second, COVID is actually expediting the replacement of these essential workers with automation and all sorts of other tools. So in theory today, if we start the world from scratch, I can live in a city with 600,000 people that are very knowledgeable and cool and the people that I need to be around in order to really create the kind of business that I'm creating. And I don't need the seven and a half million other people that are there because I can get the same service from all sorts of other people. So we might see a situation where lower wage workers remain in cities, but actually more and more of the knowledge workers are able to go to other cities, not to go live on a mountain. They will still, the aggregate demand for cities will continue, but within cities, I think there's gonna be a lot of shifting. We don't need to go too far back in history uh, to see that even when the city reinvents itself, it might take 20 or 30 years. If your investors are up for that, great. If not, uh, maybe they can wait. Uh, I think regardless of what I'm saying at the macro level, there's always good deals one way or another everywhere on earth and definitely in New York. So I'm not saying don't buy anything. I'm just saying don't assume that the the waves will carry everyone uh, equally. I think that the 21st century starts now in 2020. I think that what we saw over the last 20 years was mostly the culmination of the industrial era of mass production, mass media, mass consumption, mass entertainment, mass cities. Uh, And I'm seeing a lot of new ways to achieve the same agglomeration economies without cities as they are. You know, online people socialize differently, people work differently, people mate and meet each other differently. Uh, which doesn't mean that there's not gonna be cities. I think cities will are gonna be even more important, but they will have to provide things that are completely different in order to attract people. People, just like the story with the office, they will not have to be in the city in order to access the best employment opportunities. They might still want to be in the city for something else, but the city will have to convince them to come and be there. And what I am most concerned about here, going back to the New York Times example, is that we're going to see the same dynamic that we saw in the media world emerge in the physical world, which means that actually human communities are going to become actually more segregated. More people will flow into places that have more people like them and more kind of ideological bubbles or idea bubbles. Uh, and you know they will leave behind everyone else because they don't have to deal with these people.
0: Is that something that can be solved by the technological revolution that you're describing, or is it the inevitable conclusion of it?
1: So in terms of the world becoming more segregated, I think that left unchecked, this is where we are headed. Uh, I don't think that there is a, a heavy-handed way to address it. I don't think that by kind of willing it to be different, it will be different. I think the government... In cities and even real estate developers should approach it proactively by making cities more affordable to different people by creating economic opportunities in a way that brings people together. It's definitely one of the challenges that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about and that I want to address in my next book.
0: So, Dror, let's uh, now ask a different question. I want to talk about demographics. I want to talk about the changing in the workplace, how we have not four generations there, which is the boomers, the Gen Xers, the millennials and the Zers. We now have the fifth, which is artificial intelligence. How does that shape some of your opinions about the future of real estate?
1: So I think it mostly means that the idea of a one size fits all product is becoming more and more tenuous. So in multifamily, you know, currently a lot of developers, they build, let's say a three bedroom apartment. They don't really think too much who's gonna use it. You know, if it's three housemates or a family with two kids or a grandma with a helper, I'm just gonna build more or less the same product. I think the market is going to expect more and more specialized uh, solutions on that front. And then when you come to the office, even more so, people need access on demand to all sorts of specialized places and spaces that allow them to work the way they like to work and to produce their best type of work, which means that a lot of these spaces will probably have to be shared with other companies, because if you want them available on demand, unless you're Google or Facebook or a few other companies, you can't really build a campus with, you know five different options for every employee, but you can, if you're a smaller company, allow your employees to have on-demand access to a diversity of spaces, both within your own building and elsewhere.
0: Let's talk about that. You talked about four or five of the largest corporations on the planet in the history of the world, frankly. And then you said, and then there's everybody else. I think there's a big category of everybody else that can have their own defined space. And when I say their own defined space, I'm not just talking about long-term leases that are easily finance, which is sort of my mindset as a capital markets professional, but I'm also talking about your company's identity, its culture, its ability to attract and retain talent. And that's before we even talk about the security aspects
1: of having your own space. Are those all going to go away? I don't think that they're going to go away. They're going to become even more important, but they're going to be defined along all sorts of dimensions that maybe we, particularly coming from the real estate world, uh, have a blind spot for. So, you know, the old world of real estate is a bit like saying, okay, we have our own space with our own brand. It's top of the line. This is our culture. I'm sure you love it. Or to say, listen, I'm going to give you this wealth of, of options and you choose whatever works for you. How does that sound? And I think for many people, that sounds pretty cool. So maybe for the landlord or for the employer, it's really important to have a logo on the door or to choose the color of the leather. But for a lot of employees, what matters more is that, you know, I choose stuff on my own time wherever I want it.
0: Well, this is an area where we're going to um, not disagree because I agree with you that choice is the answer. Agility is the overall answer. But there was a terrific study that came out in 2015 by Stanford University, which really studied work from home. And it came to conclusions that you can efficiently work from home and the company can save some money and the employees can get more flexibility. Sounds all good, right? Well, it's not all good. It's not all good when it came down to the ability to learn the communication skills you need to advance. Socialization, your ability to get promoted, uh, was impacted negatively. So much so that in that study in 2015, granted this was a company in China that was doing travel services, so not it's a Fortune Yes. Yep. Two thirds of the people who had volunteered to work from home decided to go back to the office on a permanent basis after the study. What do you say to that study?
1: So first, my previous question or answer was not about whether people will work from the office or from home. The fact that they're not going to go to the main HQ every day from nine to five doesn't mean that they're all they're all going to work from home. Second, the companies that work best in a distributed way are companies that are designed to work that way. That have work processes and ways to measure the performance of their employees and all sorts of other social activities that happen, not necessarily at the office, but regularly in all sorts of other places in order to foster learning and socialization. Uh, So I don't expect that if you take, you know, General Motors from 1950 and you put it in even Facebook's office today, in their office, that they will perform very well. But we can look at how some newer companies are working and at their procedures, and we see that they can make it work. I don't think that it will be for everyone. Uh, but it will definitely be for a much bigger percentage of companies. And it is already what the largest companies that are growing fastest are doing.
0: Let's go back to the future of Management Theory 101 from 1950 to maybe the present. Uh, the Peter Druckers, the Jack Welches, the great thinkers. And they were all focused on efficiency, not necessarily productivity. And I think a lot of the management practices that we've seen over the past 50, 60 years, put efficiency on a pedestal to the detriment, maybe, of productivity. Are we heading into a world now that productivity is going to be more important than efficiency?
1: I think definitely. I mean, even Peter Drucker, he actually expected the office to disappear, I think, even 30 years ago. He said that the internet's going to change everything and the structure of companies and the structure of offices. Uh, he was actually wrong on that, at least for now. Uh, but yes, I think people are going to be measured much more based on what they actually produce, uh, which is often stuff that is harder to measure that doesn't, doesn't progress linearly. It's not like, okay, I'm sitting at the office for nine hours every day and I produce five pieces of paper and three tables. So it means I did a good job. It's more like, oh, you know, I was sitting for three weeks and kind of s- staring at the wall, but then I came up with an amazing idea and I made my company tons of money. So they're going to keep me. Uh, so it's much harder to measure people like that. Uh, I think one of the consequences of COVID beyond the discussion about work from home or work at the office, I think a lot of companies are just going to realize that they have a lot of people that don't really do anything useful.
0: So if Max Weber and Frederick Taylor were involved in this conversation today, right now, if they were there are two other guests, and for people who don't know who Max Weber and Frederick Taylor are, they are two of the grandfathers of the workplace study movement starting over 100 years ago. Uh, I was a ILR, Industrial and Labor Relations student at Cornell, so I studied these guys hardcore. Would they be surprised where we are today, or would they be saying, I told you so?
1: They wouldn't maybe say, I told you so, but I don't know if they would be surprised, because there's a lot of elements in where the labor market is headed, which are as cold and as cruel as what they had in mind. In a way, workers don't have anywhere else to hide, so if Taylor liked to measure people at work but you could at least pretend that you're working and it would still be measured. Today, you're home, you can't pretend. Whatever you deliver is being measured in a very specific way. And if you don't deliver it, we're all becoming Uber workers, basically. So you don't just get a salary and a pension and everything else just because you exist and you show up. You have to do much more. So it is becoming a colder, more efficient, uh, more measured world uh, one way or another. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where we can measure productivity accurately? No, because I think it will keep pulling ahead and away from us. Once we figure out how to measure the old way of working, already in two years, there'll be all sorts of new processes and new things that are even more abstract. Ultimately, it's a bit like one of the US justices said about pornography, but he said, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. And I think good managers, they know who actually delivers creative ideas and who adds value, even if there's no direct way to quantify that or to measure that definitely not on an ongoing basis
0: let's shift now to the one asset class that uh, probably needs no introduction anymore uh, which is what they call sheds over in europe but we call industrial or logistics here in america and much like your comment about you say we're just scratching the surface on the internet Um, are we just scratching the surface on industrial or is there any end in sight to its golden era
1: well I love making people think, you know, I don't want to tell them what they already know, what they already think. And that's what people pay me to do. I don't have to be right. I just have to make them think. So I have a low, both a low and a high benchmark, depends how you look at it. Uh, But I think industrial has been the obvious darling over the past few years. I think the danger with a lot of these sheds is that once something changes a little bit in the paradigm, in the way things move around, or even in where people live, these sheds, I mean, they have no inherent kind of value. You know, they're just a shed near a highway somewhere. They're not near all sorts of other fun things. They're not near a lake or a river or a famous theater or a famous restaurant. Uh, So I do think that they're more risky than people currently assume. But it's, I mean, probably those who currently owe them will be out by the time (laughs) that this risk become fully apparent. To understand where they're going, we have to get a little bit more into science fiction, which I don't like to go. But, you know, considering the impact of autonomous vehicles and drones, I think it will have a big impact on these type of assets. I can't tell you that I know what the impact will be, but it will definitely change the way goods move around and the number of stops that they make along the way, and or even the intensity with which existing assets closer to the city are being used and whether they require more assets further uh, out of the city. Uh, so I do expect dislocations in the world of industrial as well. It's definitely not as safe as it is currently priced, uh, Many people, especially the big investors, you know, they bought it a long time ago at the right price, and they'll probably exit long before uh, these predictions come true. But maybe we should catch up again in five years and see where it is.
0: I'm looking forward to that conversation, Jor. But you you talked about drones and transportation just a moment ago. And here's yet another area you talk about in your book about how this is going to uh, disrupt things going down the road. This is probably yet another area where I disagree with you. And I disagree with you for a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, while I totally understand how efficient drones can be, I harken back to my office building that I currently work in at 200 Park Avenue in New York when I'm in New York, and they have a heliport on the roof, which hasn't been used since 1978 when one crashed and killed a bunch of people on Park Avenue. I'll go back even further to the, my team I used to root for as a kid, the New York Jets, had probably the most infamous halftime show in history when they brought a bunch of model plane flyers into the stadium at halftime and flew the planes over the crowd until one crashed and killed somebody in the crowd. So while I totally get the efficiency factor of flying machines, particularly drones, we still have the fall on grandma's head problem. Do you think that is going to be an impediment that's going to permanently restrict them from the United States?
1: So let me tell you about this crazy invention that people use within and between cities to move around that kills about, I think, 1.3 million people each year. Uh, It's called the automobile, and it actually moved most people to the suburbs over the last seven years. And it keeps killing people both directly. I think it maims and injures about 50 million people a year worldwide. It creates pollution and all sorts of other problems that everyone seems to be very worried about. And still it is with us, miraculously, and we allocate, I think, about a third or even more than that of our urban space for free to those things to just move around. And even to anyone who owns one, they get free parking in most cities. Uh, So when consumers really like a certain way of moving around, that way figures out a a way to stick, Uh, unlike something like an Uber or an Airbnb, which gets a lot of fans very quickly and then becomes a political power i don't think helicopters were ever uh, a popular movement i think if enough people would have had access to them they would have figured out the political way uh to uh to accommodate them and i think that's what's going to happen with a lot of the things that are coming now and i think uber is is a great example of that
0: i again i disagree. Well, I don't totally disagree. So I think you're going to see some economies like China, where you just uh, live for 10 years. I think you're going to see drones. I think you're you're going to see the triumph of efficiency over some of these other costs. I think you're going to see that in other more controlled economies. I don't think you're going to see it here. Uh, And I think part of it has to do with the democratization of it. And you used exactly what I was thinking, which was if everybody benefits from it, why wouldn't everybody use it? Well, because not everybody's benefiting from it. Uh, The haves are getting far more than the have-nots. The haves are benefiting from it. The have-nots are losing their jobs. And so I think these political issues uh, are not insignificant, uh, perhaps left so in some controlled economies, though. But I do think it's going to retard the growth of uh, autonomous technologies, Uh, longer than uh, certainly than we think.
1: I agree that the political considerations matter. You'll note that I mentioned drones and even AVs specifically in the context of logistics, of moving things, not moving people. Uh, But I still think that, you know, again, even Uber, most people don't benefit from using it, but it's a force. And I think a lot of other things will emerge that you and I cannot even imagine, but I'm sure that they will emerge.
0: No doubt about it. And uh, while I'm a big Uber user, uh, my grandfather was a New York City cab driver. And if he was still around driving a cab today, I might have a different opinion. But that's a story for a another podcast. So let's talk about PropTech for a moment. What PropTech device or system do you think is coming into play in the next couple of years that will be the next big disruptor, particularly for commercial role estate?
1: The short answer is nothing. If you expect PropTech to save you, it's not going to save you. Anything that you can buy off the shelf, everyone else can buy off the shelf. So what matters for winners in the world that's coming as far as real estate owners and operators or anyone else goes is how you take all sorts of existing tools and existing possibilities and you devise a strategy that makes you different. So I think PropTech is very important. I expect it to continue to grow as an ecosystem. Everyone should constantly look at what they can install and try and and bring into their buildings and to their businesses. But I think this is just table stakes. This is not what's going to save anyone. So I'm actually not terribly excited about any of this. Uh, yeah.
0: For once, we've agreed on something. Um, I think that the prop tech revolution is here and the data aggregation and then the opportunities are limitless. But the one thing that's still most important and will be for a very, very long time in our business is the human element to it, which is being able to understand all of this prop tech, being able to understand all this data, being able to use it. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had And people say, we have too much data and we don't know what to do with it. So are humans going
1: away in commercial real estate, George? I don't think this is a major concern. Let's put it that way. Uh, I think to begin with, real estate is a very capital intensive industry. I think labor costs were never the biggest issue. Again, I'm not talking about construction itself. I'm talking about just, you know, the the world of transactions. Just to kind of cruise and do what everyone else is doing is not going to be enough. I think whether you're a broker or a developer or whatever your specific expertise is, you'll have to constantly learn to make the most of, best, of the best tools, uh, to even know how to market yourself differently. I think it's, it's just like a different world. And we're seeing already some cool brokers. I have a friend who works at CBRE, uh, David Cairns from Toronto. And, you know, he's great. He's always on LinkedIn, sharing things, creating content in a unique way, Uh and, and I see more of these kind of emerging types of brokers that play a completely different game. And I think a lot of people can learn from them. Uh, and on the other hand, in the real estate world, I meet so many people who are so complacent who try to convince me why nothing is changing. And then something like COVID happens. And then they say, yes, I was wrong, but it's because of COVID. It's not because of all of these obvious things that we already saw, if we really wanted to look at them, uh, which is another important point. I think landlords now have a wonderful excuse to change. Uh, they don't have to admit a lot of the mistakes that they've made. They can just blame it on COVID, which is fine with me, but they should still use the opportunity to change and to learn the lessons. Well, Dror,
0: this is your crystal ball kind of wrap-up question. And as a visionary in commercial real estate and tech, this may be the only question I really needed to ask, but it comes from your book. And the quote from the last chapter from uh, Charles Dickens was, quote, are we headed for a spring of hope? or a winter of despair, and I would add, in commercial real estate. So is the future of commercial real estate a spring of hope or a winter of despair, Drawer?
1: I think we're headed to a winter of despair followed by a spring of hope. So I think we're going to have uncertainty at least until the spring of 2021. And I hope that once that goes away, things will start to warm up. Uh, In the office world, I have to admit that I don't know yet what it would look like because... A lot of companies will be at home for more than a year by that point, and we'll see what they're up to when they come back. But I'm sure that we'll come back to a different world, whatever it is.
0: Well, on behalf of The Weekly Take, I had a wonderful conversation today with Drawer Poleg, the author of Rethinking Real Estate and a New Book. Do you want to give our listeners the title of your new book yet, or is that still in the, in the
1: works? It's still in the works.
0: Still in the works. Well, Dror Poleg, one of the great thinkers in the commercial real estate business, thank you for joining The Weekly Take today.
1: Thank you, Spencer. I enjoyed it.
0: For more information, go to CBRE backslash the weekly take. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy.
1: Be smart, be safe, be well.